Hey guys, just a heads up about some classes and webinars on writing and creativity on offer from Santa Fe Workshops, which is sponsoring this episode. You might recall that I teach travel memoir classes for Santa Fe Workshops nearly every year. Right now, depending on my schedule, we're looking at a spring or a fall offering. And if you follow me on social media, you know that I'm stoked that Pico Iyer is offering a webinar entitled Across the World and Deep Within in mid-February. Right now, and I'm talking about within this coming week from January 27th to 29th, Santa Fe Workshops is offering a one-of-a-kind creativity webinar with Natalie Goldberg and Eddie Soloway. Natalie, as you may know, is a best-selling author and writing teacher, and Eddie is an award-winning photographer. Together, they're teaching an inspirational three-day online seminar called Three Simple Lines and the Color of Wind, which explores the intersection of words and images. The two artists will be in dialogue with each other on three successive days about the creative process, and you can join the webinar for just $145. Details in the show notes at rolfpotscom slash deviate or at santafeworkshops.com. Be sure to sign up for their newsletter for information on upcoming classes. All right, here's today's episode. By and large, there is a, a great reticence and, and fear and knee-jerk reaction uh, towards the negative of traveling with children. And I... I I will admit that when I first started traveling with Bodie, I, I was kind of that dude who was like, this is the way my life's been. I'm not going to change. We're going to keep doing it. But I learned so quickly that children change everything about travel. And Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I talk with travel writer Bruce Kirkby, whose latest book, Blue Sky Kingdom, recounts the time he and his wife and his two young sons escaped the overconnected distractions of modern life in Canada by moving to a Tibetan Buddhist monastery in the Indian Himalayas for three months. We talk about the tensions one feels between the pull of ancient traditions and modern life in isolated parts of the world. We talk about the task of raising kids in a remote part of the world versus the distractions of parenthood back home in the face of social media and smartphones. And we talk about how showing up with a child as a traveler can really open doors to a local culture because it immediately gives people something to relate to. We also talk about how the experience of visiting a place for three months is different from visiting a place for three hours or three days, and how working with the TV film crew complicates the act of traveling with your family, as happened when Bruce did this for his travel channel show Big Crazy Family Adventure. We start by talking about the parallels between our careers and how his travel writing and TV presenting career got started. Let's listen in. Well, your book, Blue Sky Kingdom, is about you and your family's trip to a Tibetan part of India and spending a summer there. But before we dig into that adventure specifically, I want to compare notes a little bit because our careers have some parallels. I'm sort of a dirtbag version of uh, your more adventurous version as a travel writer and photographer. I know that um, we both have reported from the Mergui Archipelago in Myanmar. Um, yes. We spent some time in, in uh, Mongolia, but how did you... It feels like your career started... Um, as a rugged solo traveler, and then you started traveling with your wife, and then you started traveling with your kids. So what's an encapsulation of where your travel career has taken you in the last 20 or 30 years? Yeah, I'm going to come back to that word dirtbag, which I, I really enjoy. But, I, you know, it ha I mean, it's been 30 years. And so I, the, the, nut sh the thumbnail is that I uh, went to school to be an engineer and engineering physics. And I have to say, probably... In my high school days, I always return to Michael Fox and, and his character and family ties as this influence. I wanted to be rich and have a corner office and a glassy tower and drive a red car. Uh, and, and so it's kind of the Michael P. Keaton thing. And uh, and I and I was good at math and science. And so I was I thought no point in doing, uh, you know, business or commerce right out of high school. I'll go get an engineering degree and then combine that with commerce and off I go. Um, and in the process of that, uh, the only engineering that really interested me was physics, which I just appreciated because it seemed practical. And that sounds like an odd thing to say, but you understood why the sky was blue and how electricity flowed and different things. And uh, But the, the downside was the only careers were academia and research, which really didn't suit my personality. And and I was in the process of trying to figure out what to do next. And I started guiding rafts on the Ottawa River, who was programming SQL databases in Ottawa. 
And uh, very quickly, I realized in kind of the way your vagabonding book, everything is uh, themed around the value of our time. And mm -hmm. I, I was so aware at that point, and I've always wondered why I had this awareness that I just simply couldn't trade my time for money, that those two days of the weekend were invaluable compared to the five days of the week. And so I was very lucky to have no uh, obligations in terms of a mortgage or a car lease or anything. And I just decided to make the, the two days of the weekend, the seven days of my week. Basically, I just followed my nose from there, Rolf. I, I um, started guiding up in the Arctic. I actually ended up spending over 20 summers on doing raft and canoe expeditions up there. But that led to um, trips in, in uh, you know, the Alps in the winter and the Caribbean in the winter and lots of guiding. And all of a sudden, I was shooting photos about it and writing about it. So those were the things I pursued. And, and uh, you know, I met Christine and she started coming on the trips uh, and, and I had children and they, they've continued to come on the trips. So th that's the, the long winded nutshell. Yeah. Well, you know, as you were describing uh, the beginning of your career, I actually thought of your fellow Canadian, Kate Harris, who sort of started very sciencey and became more and more adventurous. Are you f are you familiar with her? Are you friendly with her? Kate Kate is a dear, dear friend. Yes. And, uh, and I, you know, I've watched with great joy as, as her book rightly. So, you know, rocketed to acclaim. I've read some of her sentences and just marveled over them. So yes, no, I'm very familiar with Kate. And, uh, I, I think she was probably a far better scientist and a far better writer than me, but I, I stumble along in her shadows. Yeah. Maybe, maybe there's something Canadian about going into science and coming out an adventurer. <laughs> So you had all of these adventures all over the world uh, by yourself through Arabia with your wife across Iceland and Mongolia and with your boys in places like France and the Republic of Georgia. Did you bring your boys to the Republic of Georgia? Yes. And, mm. and that was quite a Christine was an absolute, uh, you know, saint and, and iron willed woman in that Taj was uh, eight months old and still breastfeeding and Bodhi was uh three years old at the time. And I'd learned with Bodhi that, you know, I could no longer carry all the gear. Uh, well, with Bodhi, I could carry all the gear and Christine could carry Bodhi, but we had to get ultralight gear. Then Taj came along, we needed animals. And so I, I reached out to, to friends about areas that they thought, you know, might be interesting to explore with a, a pack animal. And a friend wrote back and said, the, the, the Caucasus of Georgia are just incredible. The you know, the, the people living in those high valleys, uh, the shepherds, and it's kind of a land of milk and honey was the way they described it. So we went and bought some horses, uh, and but it's heinously hot there in the mm. summer. And, and, you know, Georgia was struggling with war with Russia at the time. And so we did 70 days uh, with our uh, on with pack horses through those mountains. And uh, I, I often look back on that as a testament to Christine's strength. After all this traveling you've done by yourself with your wife and then later with your sons, what was it about this trip to this Himalayan region, this Tibetan region where India meets China and Pakistan? What motivated the journey that eventually became um, your Blue Sky Kingdom book? Yeah, I think that, you know, the very root uh, feeling or cause of that was this idea uh, my my sense of our my growing distraction and how I navigated the world and, and we, obviously we tie that to to our smart devices now and and that was new at the time and I don't think it was so much in um, the public vocabulary and understanding uh, the the impact these had on us and the efforts that were being made to kind of strip mine our attention but I just was growing aware I live in Kimberley BC it's a kind of quiet old mining turned ski town on the kind of Alberta BC border. You know, at the end of the road, it's this quiet, there's forest right outside my door. You couldn't pick a quieter spot. And yet I felt like not frantic, but busy. And I had two young boys and I wasn't paying attention to them. And, and in the book, I pick a specific incident where uh, and it was a true moment when I was actually at the table. And I realized my son had been explaining something to me at length and I'd been you know, kind of locked into Facebook. And I just felt that's wrong. So that was that, you know, I, I need to do better. Give us a little background about this place that you ended up in, which is sort of ethnically Tibetan, but is in literally in India. It's called Zanskar. And why did you choose this place over the other parts of the Himalayan region where you could have spent these three months with your family? Obviously, there, there's all these kind of enclaves left across the Himalayas where uh, Tibetan Buddhism uh, exists, and it and it's seen as, as in so many um, different areas in our planet. As as modernity and change encroaches, the the further down the road you go, or off the road, and the longer you hike, 
uh, the more you feel, I, I don't want to say you have an intact experience, but that you're, you get a, a glimpse of perhaps the way things used to be. And we can talk a little bit about whether there's some danger, you know, in that and why we can't accept impermanence and, and what, you know, I'm not suggesting we need to keep these a, a, as kind of these, uh, you know, pass passing by museums for, for tourists at all. But, but I, I was really interested in getting away from it all. And so I, I luckily have a large web of contacts who spent time in the Himalayas and started talking in the mall. And there was always different reasons why different areas didn't make sense. Bhutan had, you know, heavy forests in the lowlands. And I, I dreamed of kind of wandering these great treeless valleys and uh, Dolpo and Mustang in uh, Nepal, obviously, ha since the snow leopard and other early writings have mm. remained in our collective unconscious. But I ultimately talked to to a man who's generally not so enthusiastic, and he started talking about Ladakh in general uh, and Zanskar especially with such enthusiasm. And and the line that he said that stuck with me was that if the Sherpas are a nine out of ten on the friendliness scale, and I'm sure you've spent time with with the Sherpa people, and you know, to me, I'd probably put them at about a nine point nine eight, or you know, they're 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 hmm. very uh, pleasant, genial, jolly people it generally ended up painting with a broad brush and and he was like well the ladakis are going to be you know if the sherpas are nine the ladakis are 9.5 and that that kind of cast the die and zanskar is a very large mountain valley uh caught between basically the north side of the himalayas and the tibetan plateau there's no easy way in or out there's there is a dirt track that was built over the pensila pass uh in the 70s it brought kind of the first whispers of change to that land even before that there was there was reputedly no wheels even wheelbarrows in the hmm. valley and there was there was really no cash currency there was no concept of private real estate i mean tibetan tradition has land passed down from oldest son to oldest son and so you know in our lifetime this had been a uh almost had remained unchanged for for perhaps a, arguably a thousand years and it was starting to change and there was a big road being pushed in but i realized we had a chance uh perhaps to get there before that road road got there so we we set our sights on that valley and you didn't just fly from <laughs> british columbia to you know tokyo to delhi to the the, the ladakh capital of Leh. you actually decided to go overland why why go overland and um, how did that affect your thinking about this journey? Well, for I mean you you know as well as I'm sure many of your listeners this this weirdness and it feels increasingly weird to me um, the ability pre COVID to jump on a plane have have a uh, you know in flight meal maybe a, a small bottle of wine watch a movie go to sleep poke through the the, the lonely planet and and wake up. Uh, in Asia, you know, and, and obviously you're waking up in a big modern city, but you're moving out of that and, and the world's completely changed o overnight. That's the way the world is. And that, that's just how stuff happens now. But but I suppose for this journey, a that felt a little disingenuous to to just simply fly to northern India in search of peace and stillness. And mm -hmm. I think, I mean, just reading all the, the, you know, going way back to riding the Iron Rooster with Paul through these ideas of great overland journeys and we think of the hippie trail um through the 70s and, and the, i've been very drawn to that I, and, and i think dirt bagging and vagabonding has somewhat changed in terms of uh perhaps there was more of those really extensive traveling versus immersing ourselves uh, for for time in a culture that we that we are starting to see now um, but I, I was, I wanted to experience that. And so it seemed like a, a good opportunity. Yes. The TV crew was all tied into that. Uh, it was a wonderful part of the experience, but it paled in terms of the time we spent just simply living in a, you know, an eight foot by eight foot mud brick room on the side of cliffs deep in the Himalayas. Your sons at the time, uh, Bodhi was seven and Taj was three. I was think, I think That's and right. you traveled with your kids a lot, but you're up at altitude. Um, you know, what kind of feedback did you get? To, was there anxiety from your friends, you know, thinking of taking your two quite young kids uh, to this very, very isolated, far from modern hospitals part of the world? I, th I think I probably had experienced more anxiety early on in my travels with them. But I would say 
uh, you know, by and large, there is a, a great reticence and, and fear and knee-jerk reaction uh, towards the negative of traveling with children. And I, I, I will admit that when I first started traveling with Bodhi, I, I was kind of that dude who was like, this is the way my life's been. I'm not going to change. We're going to keep doing it. But I learned so quickly that children change everything about travel and a lot for the better. And, and the, that dawned on me when I took Bodhi to, or became clear to me, I should say, when I took Bodhi uh, to, to Patagonia. But even when we landed that first day in Buenos Aires, uh, you know, we went out for uh, Matalunas and, and uh, some coffee in the morning and high school students on the way to school, uh, businessmen, construction workers were stopping and wanting to hold our eight-year-old, eight-month-old son. Hmm. Uh, and they were calling him Cachete, the Cheeks. And in that first two hours on the streets of Buenos Aires, I glimpsed how Bodhi was going to open the door to that culture in, you know, I've been traveling for 20 plus years at that point in ways that I had never been able to navigate before. And I postulate that a lot of that is um, there's a real shared humanity in a child and and parents meeting parents watching a child having a meltdown know that they they there's an empathy there and yeah you know we we show up as young 20 something travelers in different places in the world and it seems strange that we don't work what are we doing and, and you know this has a, a been discussed at, at length in kind of uh, travel literature but boy when you show up with a child it, it just the doors open in, in an unbelievable way and, and both with men and women, but there's a lot of um, a real sense of bond between local women and Christine. They could mm. they could just see she what she was doing, and they would say, "You have to come and stay with us. You have to come and eat dinner with us." And it was absolutely unbelievable how we navigated Patagonia and, and southern Chile and Argentina with a child, rather than had Christine and I been uh, alone. So, and, and I, I should also say, Rolf, I also really, really believe deeply that this offers an extraordinary value to the child. And I will give this example. So we had taken Bodhi down there uh, when he was kind of eight months to 10 months old, uh, still pre-verbal largely, but everyone wanted to hold him. We would, you know, you go out to dinner in, in Buenos Aires and, you know, most people aren't even hitting the steakhouse till midnight and we'd be there at eight and there'd be no one there. And so the chef would be like, my goodness, you can't eat a steak with a child at your table. Let me take him in the back. And hmm. off your child goes to the back. And, you know, sometimes they'd bake bread and bring the bread out. You know, Bodhi had rolled it and proudly showed it to us. But Bodhi learned to seek that attention. And that, th there was a valuing of the child. There was a sense of community that we have lost touch with in a way uh, in North America, I would suggest. So what happened with Bodhi is that when we came home and we'd be in Starbucks lineup, he'd be making noises because he expected to interact. He'd expected other people to be interested in him and they weren't. And he learned to stop seeking that attention. But I really strongly believe that uh, a child on the road feels valued in a way they may not always at home by a broader community. And it has a, it has a really beneficial impact. So anyways, yeah, we, we, we continue traveling with the kids. Yeah, no, that's that's something I think you discover in places like Asia. And I realize Asia is a very huge place. It's hard to generalize about. But m almost every place I've been in Asia really understands the family union as a very central part of their own lives. And even in my late 20s, when I was traveling vagabonding across Asia for the first time, People would say, "Oh, you're you're 28. Do you have kids?" And when I said no, they seemed a little bit sad. You know, like they they felt bad for me they didn't have kids because obviously kids were such a big part of their lives. Um, another thing I discovered as I was traveling at that age is that when I traveled with my parents, who at the time were in their 60s and going a little bit gray, in places like China, people had so much respect for my parents. They were just really excited and interested in my parents uh, in a way that. Um, older people don't sort of get that sort of respect in the United States. And so I think it's easy to over-idealize that sort of rugged individualist young traveler thing that happens um, and forget sometimes that you really do humanize yourself when you bring kids along. Now, one thing that comes up in the, in the story is that um, your oldest son, Bodhi, who was seven at the time, uh, was discovered to be on the autism spectrum. Is this something that was diagnosed before this journey? So Bodhi's diagnosis came when he was about four and a half. Um, and, and so Christine and I had known for, for several years. And, and of course, uh, this actually has become something I write about. But as a parent of a, a child on the spectrum, as a parent of any child that, that kind of 
falls under one of these umbrellas of ADHD or dyslexia or whatever, you begin with these series of, of interventions, uh, which are, you know, well-intentioned, they're born from a place of love. Um, and, and so we had, and we hadn't shared with Bodhi his diagnosis, our support counselors had said, look, he, he's too young for that. The, the time will come. Uh, and we've actually touched on a lot of things I'd love to chat about because Bodhi became an unbelievable parallel uh, for what I was, the changes I was seeing coming to Zanskar. And maybe we can get to that in a bit. But um, we also realized that we ha- we decided we had to disclose Bodhi's diagnosis to the television crew because otherwise they would mm. misportray him. They would know something was different. They wouldn't know how, just the way many of us, if we aren't exposed to spectrum type behavior, um, we'll misunderstand it in our lives and in our encounters when we brush up against it. And so we also felt strongly there's there's some controversy about disclosure. The people will say that's the child, that should be the child's decision. But uh, we, we really felt, you know, to say to Bodhi, this, this is a central plank in how you navigate the world and understand the world, but we're going to keep it secret for now until you're 18. Uh, just seemed like the wrong thing. It, mm-hmm. it seemed, you know, we, we keep secrets about stuff that we're ashamed or embarrassed of. And we, we did, we wanted to um, not do that. And of course you second guess yourself, but we decided we would disclose Bodhi's diagnosis to the crew. And so there was this impending television show coming out uh, when we came home and Christine and I actually decided uh, while we were at the monastery, we would have that discussion. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a huge sit down, son, we've got a talk moment, but we had to start helping Bodhi to understand who he was and, and why he acted in certain ways, um, it, it, which has been a very important part of his journey. So yes, uh, it, and people often say, you know, with a child on the spectrum, how can you travel with them? Because because of kind of one of the primary uh, shared characteristics uh, of those on the spectrum is a resistance to change and an affinity for uh, routine and regularity. Mm. But I have found that there is unbelievable uh, regularity and routine in travel of of the deepest things. Of course, all the superficial stuff's changing, but the love and attention of the parent, the fact that, you know, if you're on a wilderness trip, you're sleeping in the tent, probably, you know, if you have a Bodhi and your family in the same order in the tent, you know, uh, four people lined up like sardines. Um, but basically you get up, you travel, you set up the tent, you eat. It, it's the same every day. And, and Bodhi has found uh, immense comfort in that routine and the same on on the journey. I mean, we were going to a guest house every night. And yes, it might be in Beijing or Amdo or Qingdao, but Bodhi would the, – the road did not distress Bodhi in the way people felt it, it might one interesting thing from the very beginning is is the presence of the film crew, um, and I would think that that would lend some aspects to Bodhi's experience of travel that might seem a little bit weird, a little bit unpredictable. But also, it was interesting to read your book just to see how it you felt it felt like it was sort of irritating to try to travel in front of a sixteen person film crew, and. <laughs> And so how did the film crew become involved? And simply because I have a little bit of experience with film crews myself, I can completely relate to the idea of trying to pretend to travel, you know, for these people who sort of want you to do certain things over again, um, some of which have, you know, they might be good at holding a camera, but aren't really that interested in travel, um, aren't that polite. Um, So how did the TV crew become involved and what kind of challenges did that present to you and your family as you embarked on this journey? Yeah, I, I should certainly say, you know, as, as as a kind of backdrop to this, that I had mixed feelings, and and you will know this. You know, you, I don't want to say you make these deals with the devil, but you you um to to make a living through travel, to make a living through writing and and photography, uh, everything isn't always a dream. There, there there's some compromise, I guess, is the way I should put it. And so I'd been involved with television in the past and certainly the adventures that I, the more physical jocular adventures, if you will, I, I um, was pursuing some ways of filming some of those. And one of the producers I was in touch with, I really wasn't pitching this idea to him. I just was talking to him one day and said, look, I'm going to be away for the next half year or nine months. Cause I'm, I'm going to Zanskar with my family. And he was an Australian guy, really good guy. And he said, uh, Oh, mate, hold on. That's, that could be it. This is the ultimate family relocation. Huh. And um, so I, I kind of broached it with Christine, who's much more introverted than me. Um, and she was kind of lukewarm. And I suggested, you know, look, 
I, like you, and I, I'm sure you probably feel this way, Rolf, is that the type of travel that we're involved with um, struggles to be portrayed fairly often on, on television. There are some shows that, that, that come closer to it. There, there, there's many just logistics that make it hard to do. And then there's, there's, there's the terrible reality aspect of so much modern travel. But, you know, I'd been drawn to Ewan McGregor's long way around. I liked the way it just felt gritty and one camera. They were filming it themselves often, or they had one, one embedded camera along. And so this was kind of the vision I had with Christine. We'd, we'd find someone who was very, we were friendly with, and we could operate as a team and we would travel halfway around the world. And then I started to realize uh, Travel Channel, who, who had ultimately bought this, had a different vision and there was going to be there was budgets for helicopters and a crew of 16. And I fretted for a bit. Um, but ultimately, I thought, well, let's just do it the best we can. Basically, I realized at some point it's kind of like I'm going to guide these 16 people halfway across the world because hmm. most of them haven't been out of North America. Hmm. And so they're going to be figuring out all the stuff that a first time traveler is going to be when we land in. Korea and we start making our way through China and there were some frustrations because, um, you know, travel with two kids on a 90 day overland journey is, is challenging enough. Uh, I tried to be really big hearted about it and I have to, I, I really, I tried hard in the book to find that balance between saying, yeah, of course, having cameras in your face, having a sound pack on you all day long, is going to be a pain. Um, and there's going to be times that you just have had enough when the heat's up and, you know, the kids are low on blood sugar. But that being said, it, it wasn't as bad as uh, it wasn't an absolute misery. And it actually it enabled us to do certain things that I don't think we ever would have done without the crew. So we tried to focus on on those good um, facts because they would be researching all types of activities. And, and, you know, Christine and I might have just collapsed in Delhi, but they're like, oh, we got a cooking class for Christine and Bruce is going to do this. And we're like, All right. Uh, we're, we're game. But it was really clear to me that I, that I wanted them to leave when we reached the monastery. I was mm -hmm. even really worried about that first day at the monastery because, you know, first impressions are everything. And and you know what it's like um, just try to gain uh, trust and build that very nascent relationship with a, a, a remote community, in this case of, of monks and lamas. And if, if we kind of bulldoze in there like a bull in a china shop in the first day and then tried to repair that, I was concerned. But the first day went fine and they, they left and, and then we settled into this kind of oceanic silence beyond cell towers and, and cars and all those things. So By the time you got up to the monastery and you had gotten rid of your film crew finally, uh, what was it like to make this transition from the very connected world to this world where you didn't necessarily have these devices, where you were you were eating food that was different and having daily experiences that were different? Was it hard? Was was it hard for your kids? Uh, not hard for the kids at all. Our kids aren't super connected. They enjoy games, but we told the little white lie that there would be no way to read. We brought an iPod to keep them somewhat, um, entertained on, on the long train rides and, and, uh, Jeep rides across Asia. Um, and, and there, there is some rudimentary power at Zanskar. We probably could have charged that thing, but we simply said, Hey, we charge it before the trek. We can, they played with it for the first three days. It went black and they never thought about it again. And I think, um, and you've probably experienced this, that that it, it it's kind of like withdrawal for a little bit. Like at, at first you reach for that phantom buzz, you wonder about it, you, you, you think I should just, well, I've got nothing to do, I'll check Twitter or something. But very, very quickly, for me anyways, that that evaporates. But really what that time in Zanskar helped reveal to me was how out of control I was with my own attention. You know, you talk about often in your writings, uh, our only true richness being time. Mm. And, and, and I would kind of suggest that maybe this is a part of time or maybe it, it's a second uh, kind of conduit or avenue there. But the other great richness is our attention because we can waste that time not paying attention. And so, so much of obviously Buddhist culture and Himalayan culture is about being in the now, in the moment, taming the monkey mind. Uh, and in the West, we don't really have those tools or even that awareness of how precious our attention is. And now there's very uh, powerful forces all, you know, in all forms of marketing and beeps and buzzes and bright lights trying to grab a hold of our attention. And I, I, th I kind of think I was frittering away a lot of my attention for many, many years without realizing it. And so it was it was in that environment that I started to sense, A, this, 
it's not the time's not just the value, but it's what what I'm paying attention to in that time that's so enormously valuable. And I have some control over that. I have some agency that I haven't been exerting. And I'm, you know, as you got in the book, I'm not the most spiritual, you know, Shambhala type meditating guy. I, I, of course, I try to have some mindfulness practice now, but I'm not going to claim to be, uh, you know, anywhere in the top, top one or beyond the bottom one or two percent of that. But uh, that doesn't really matter. What I, I, I have tried to find ways to just wrestle my attention under control, I suppose, after my return from Zanskar. Yeah, well, um, one quote that you had in there that I enjoyed from the, I think it was from the Dalai Lama, it said that um, studying Buddhism doesn't necessarily, I'm paraphrasing here, doesn't necessarily train you to be a Buddhist, but it trains you to be a better what, whatever you are. Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and so I like that idea that, that it's, not, it's not this Judeo-Christian idea of conversion that happens when you're up in the mountains, but you're learning to pay attention. You're learning to um, let life become richer in ways that have maybe been forgotten in places where there's more distractions. But an interesting thing, too, is that there's almost this cliche of Westerners going up to the mountains and pulling themselves into lotus positions and waiting for the spirit to happen. But... Um, you actually had an exchange. You weren't just sort of imposing yourself on this monastery. You and your wife went up there to, to teach English. And I taught English in Korea for a couple of years. In fact, in Busan, where you landed off of your, your freighter ship. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm curious to know that experience and how it affected your experience, even your attention to where you were, as you sort of gave back to your community by teaching English, which you were not trained to do, but you ended up learning how to do. Um, <laughs> tell me, tell us about that part of your experience. That to me feels so crucial because you cease to be an observer and you're a participant. And, and this is what comes with time. You know, you know, as, t time and travel, as you always get come back to, is so valuable. And and being in the place for a certain amount of time lets you sink in those roots. And so with the children, yeah, I mean that was amazing because. Um, we formed relationships with those boys and we started to understand why they were at the monastery and, and some of that deals with, you know, the fading role of Buddhism in that valley and the great mm. tragedy that's unfolding as, as, as this way of life um, starts to dissolve. And it's not the tragedy that the way of life's dissolving, but, but that it drags people through uh, these unfortunate circumstances. And one is as Buddhism tries to uh, you know, to be perfectly frank, cling to some power. They exert pressure on families that they won't bless their fields unless they send a son. So in the uh, in the past where they were considered the lucky ones who went to the monastery, they got the highest form of education. Now, so, you know, some of the boys who are being sent there are the unlucky ones because the education is not great. It's performed by people like me or or by, uh, you know, not high, not um highly trained lamas and monks and while their brothers and sisters are going to to very high level private schools that are popping up in the valley and on the outskirts of the valley so um and and they were young boys they were age seven to 14 out with like so they're the you know roughly the the age of our boys and and i couldn't imagine my boys spending uh four five six years without me and christine around at that age and, and they're in a gruff monastery so so an enormous amount of love flowed between Christine and I and those boys. But the thing that I'd love to touch on a little bit as all of this started um, to unfold, and, you know, I mentioned that, that that way of life was eroding. So India's pushing this this road into Zanskar, and they've been working on it for almost 20 years now. They've actually now uh, built a rough track over the Shingula that cars are driving on. And so we walked for 10 days, and that whole 10-day trek we, is now a road. And so what hmm. was happening was... Um, you know, these the, basically the way the Himalayan life works is these little villages live where glacier waters come out of the high peaks and they form a, a small series of terrace fields that they are able to eke out their existence by growing barley in a very short growing season. And those fields are so incredibly precious. But now with the children going away to private schools, which is a good thing, um, the, the parents can no longer work the fields, so they sell them to, to Indian multinationals. And, and many of them are now trying to... Uh, Im find a way into the modern economy and they're, they're setting up little huts on the side of the road to sell pop and, and uh, Ichiban noodles to long distance truck drivers coming from Manali or Srinagar. And to me, there felt like an immense sadness in that. And, and we have to be so careful. I think Rolf, when, when we talk about 
change and there was the irony that, that Buddhism is all about impermanence. But really what I, I left that valley feeling was how unless we're very careful and I, I, I'm not quite sure how we can be this careful, we see this all around the world as as this great momentum of modern culture, this monoliths are, you know, it just plows into these areas that are existing on the fringe and they are absorbed. That model is so one way. And so in the, into that valley, and I often use the metaphor of, of the, you know, Zanskar being this little life raft floating in those mountains and, and the waters, the floodwaters are rising on the outside and they're going to pour over. And when they do, uh, it'll bring all types of really important things education, healthcare, even now, because the valley's closed for six to eight months of the year, women time their childbirth for the summer so they can get out to lay, right? And mm. and so when we think about women, issues with women's health, we, we they deserve better healthcare. They deserve uh, better education, all the technologies that, that ease our rigors. But when it rushes in so fast, there's there, the, the irony I feel in Zanskar was there's so much they were teaching me about how I could navigate this modern world. They had all these tools that were very useful to me uh, or, or felt vital or important to me. And I'm like, they're going to get lost, right? They're going to get sunk in these in these muddy floodwaters. Uh, and it's the model we've seen happening everywhere. But I really just, I guess, came away from that um, aware of that tragedy that development so often one way and and uh just uh, that was something i wanted people to think about when i wrote my book this idea that uh we really need a two they have advances that we're not making a sense of and development needs to kind of be a two-way flow if that makes uh, sense yeah no this is uh you know i've also been reporting from fairly isolated parts of the world for 20 years and there's always that trade-off you know there's the 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 sort of pleasure and complete novelty of being in this in this isolated part of the world that's not been gripped in the monoculture combined with the fact that, yeah, healthcare and education is not as good in that part of the world. One thing that comes out in your book is that you have these moments, sort of this balance where you have these moments where you and your kids are looking at a fly going into a spider web instead of, <laughs> you know, t pulling out the spider web as you might uh, in the West, you you see what it does and you see what how the spider has been industrious and catches this prey this way. It balanced with the idea that, if I'm not mistaken, there's almost like a um, Buddhist rumspringa going on. You were talking about Leh, which is the capital city of Ladakh, um, that kids about 14, 15 are sent to Leh to do a little bit of work and that there's a big appeal to the kids there, that that um, we can idealize what it's like to grow up in this very peaceful mountain valley, but they go and they are sort of... Um, intrigued in the way that in the same way that Amish people might be by but spring up by this yeah. modern world um, yeah. and so how did you make sense of that between these these beautiful spiderweb moments up in the up in the monastery versus the reality that some kids might have more life options more health and education options in bigger more globally connected cities like Lay? It, it's it's the it's the, the universal tension of all this, isn't it? In conflict, and it, it's almost uh, I, I don't know if there's a, a clean answer to that, but it's really interesting you pick that that idea of the children going off because there was um, there was an example at the end of the book or a little moment where we've come out of the mountains and, and uh, there there was a beautiful idea within Zanskar of this this social structure called the Paspun, which was three or four families bonded very closely together um, and every family in every village would be in one and they shared religious artifacts, but fundamentally they helped each other and supported each other during those physically intensive seasons of harvest and planting. But then they also cradled each other through the journey of life, through birth and marriage and sickness and death and all these things. And I was, I was quite aware that the Paspen was an idea that we don't really have a translation for in English, a, 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 a common word. We don't even have that concept. And I was on my way out. And of course, the guys I trekked out of the mountains with called their Paspun friends down, down in Lay. And uh, some of them came up to help drive us back to Lay. We, we'd been out there trekking for, you know, I've been on the road for six months. I, I look like Nick, Nick Nolte in a DUI mugshot. <laughs> uh, and I was wearing like, a, you know, the old wool robe from Zanskar that Lamo and Gal had given me. And this fellow showed up and he could have walked off the streets in New York. You know, he had like bookish glasses and perfectly coiffed hair and nice, clean, puffy jacket and blue jeans. 
And he was laughing. We were both laughing. He was like, look at me. I'm dressed up like an American and you're dressed up like someone from Lay. And so we sat down and, and he was a great English speaker. We had breakfast and I, I kind of asked him about the changes. And he, he gave this example that encapsulates what you're talking about of uh, he'd been at a party and um, he said and it was one of the, the men we hiked through the mountains with who was very interested in all the, the kind of trappings of Lay, the good and the bad trappings. And uh, he said, I, I went to his father's party a couple months ago. And he's like, his father is a farmer. You know, he, he plant, grows these crops. He's a biologist. He understands when this bird shows up, when to plant the barley. He, you know, he built his plows by hand. He built his house. He's a water irrigation engineer. He, you know, he, he keeps all these, the, the irrigation going from the glacier. He's also, you know, a historian. He understands everything about his village. He's an entertainer. He can sing not just one song, but 200. He went on and on and on about you know, we can picture that type of homesteading style individual. And he said, the thing is, he's not uncommon. Every single man in Zanskar is like that. And I would argue that every single woman is too of that of a certain age. And he's like, look at me, what can I do? I can program a computer. But he's like, what can I do? How how can I fight against this? So he felt that sense of loss. Hmm. He was also drawn. And and so I think we all are struggling with how, how that change makes sense. I mean, I totally get it that the kids, yeah, they go to lay, they can make some easy money. They, they come back with some nice clothes and that's very, very attractive to the village children. And I think a lot of the, the elders, particularly during the seventies, there's some incredible writings of, of early uh, academics who are in that Valley. And they talk about the dangers, the, the kind of elders foresaw of their peace being dissipated. And everyone talks about the past in Zanskar as a peaceful, golden, beautiful time but they can't fight against it. You know, even even one of our friends, Sonam, he had an iPhone. He was on the thing all the time he, and, and he wouldn't see his daughter for eight months a year. And then as soon as he's back at home, he's on his phone hmm. and she was crawling for his attention. And in him and in her, I saw what was happening in Canada. And so, yeah, that, that that's a really tough conflict, Rolf. I don't I don't know the answer to that because you obviously you don't want to deny them those opportunities. But uh, you want to imbue some sense uh, and support some sense of the value of some of their traditions and, and ways of being. Well, as tourists, we, we are sort of strange witnesses to this because you were there. One interesting uh, incident happens when I, I think your wife is hiking and she sees like a sanitary napkin. It's like, yeah. what kind of jackass left a sanitary napkin? And then she realizes maybe it's hers, right? It is hers. <laughs> it's been caught by a wind and blown out of the outhouse. Yeah, she's horrified. Yeah. Right. And so I think that there's there's living in a monastery for three months and watching the tourists come through with their sort of three-hour experience of the same place. And they can seem so absurd with their cameras. You You write a bit about the sort of the vulgarities of photography sometimes. But then, you know, as as travelers who spend a longer time, we also li- leave after three months. Um, and then you were, you were talking about a monastery in Lay that almost feels like a museum by comparison to the monastery that you experienced up in the mountains. Um, and so keeping in mind that in a sense we're all tourists, what kind of lens does tourism um, shed on this part of the world and how uncomfortable were you when tourists would wander into the monastery? Yeah. You know, it, your point about the length of time is, is so valid because I, I've been the, the guy who's there for three hours myself. And, mm. you know, I've been the guy who's there for longer. I, I, I obviously value that. And I was quite aware um, during our experience that there was a woman, uh, a Harvard um, anthropologist, Apologist called Kim Gutschow, I hope I'm saying her name right, who has spent upwards of 30 years in and out of Zanskar and spent, I think, 10 years living at the neighboring nunnery. And so, uh, you know, the, the amount of time we spend is always comparative and, and, and relative. But, you know, the, the photography specifically, and I think you, you may have touched on this in some of your writings, it's become so central to our travel experience that this uh, hunger of social media and i saw such extraordinary insensitivity because the llamas at this point were my friends i knew them all individually and and people would walk into the puja hall and and hold up like this glowing ipod in front of 
you know, the oldest lawmas face who, 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 you know, he, he was there in, in lay when the first DC 47 landed and, and they thought it was alive and the Jeeps coming out were its babies, like the things that he's seen in his lifetime, um, or and and then he's having this iPod pressed in his face, and we wouldn't take a picture of someone like that in downtown Denver or Montreal. So why does it feel okay to do it that to a stranger um, in the in the monastery? So the photo specifically, I had some challenge with. Uh, I, I'm really, I think. Uh, probably very closely aligned with where you're thinking on this is I would always encourage people to, to go. I think that, um, the individuals may come, you just can't judge other travel or you have to be very careful about it because there some individuals will come and have, you know, will have a very special experience in those three hours and may change the way they act and think and may have a very positive effect on part of the monastery, but others will stay longer and, and wreak some havoc. But, but I did see, the inevitability, you know, they because the tourists who were coming to Karshagampa couldn't climb like 200 stairs, they were blasting this massive road into the cliff so they could get tour buses up to the upper temples. I'm like, oh my God, really? In the in the depths of Zanskar, this is what we've come to. We've got to put in, you know, like four or five switchbacks to get people to the upper temple because they can't walk up there. Uh, it did seem a, a little bit uh, sad overall. Well, it's hard to give a soundbite answer, isn't it? Because even yeah. like the three-hour tourists sometimes spend more money per, far more money per hour on things that can help support these distant communities, you know, even if it's just for chintzy souvenirs or a bowl of soup or something. Um, and so it's it's such a complicated um, constellation of factors. Uh, and as these uh, as these areas become as these isolated areas become more precious and more rare, and then as we blast roads up toward them, um, it becomes this increasingly curious conversation. You know, that there's that, you were talking about people with their glowing iPhones taking photos. There's the old phrase, take only photos and leave only footprints. But I think that that phrase was invented before the iPhone, right? <laughs> and, and someone rightly pointed out to me, like they said, even if you're not taking photos, you're, you're imprinting all this in your mind. I mean, even if I didn't write about it, I'm still taking away some idealized version. I, I, I would argue that, that cameras have, have become, you know, really intrusive in some parts of travel uh, recently. Uh, it, there's been a great democratization because everyone's got them, but it's, all, it's also become a little burdensome. But, but yeah, and, and there's, a, there's an evolution that we all by necessity go through. I, I was just listening, you know, in the last few days to, to a woman on your podcast who talked about these pants that have zippers, you know, and, and at one point we buy them because we're new travelers and then we kind of mock them because we're, you know, we're more seasoned travelers. And then by 10 years in, maybe we just, just accept whatever it is because we, we've been out there longer. And I think, uh, I, I really want to be careful in, in my writing and in, in our conversation of passing judgment, hmm. uh, on, on how anyone travels. Cause we're all on our own kind of extended journey, not just that little journey, but our, our journey through life of how we do it. And, and I, I, you know, by and large, see travel as a force for good and a force for understanding in a world that it increasingly uh, it doesn't understand differences so well. Is this journey a part of your family dynamic now? Um, how did it affect each person in your family? And, and how do you remember this experience that even though it wasn't a typical experience, you were there temporarily in this very unique, isolated part of the Himalayas? Yeah. I, um, well, one really funny thing that rolled out of that was that the boys remember the TV show. I mean, they remember the time there, but watching yourself on TV, I don't know if you found this is kind of like listening to yourself on the answering machine. It's something I'd rather not do. Uh, but the boys have little like, of course, the TV producers pick these lines, the boys said, and they've become kind of like part of our family's go to vernacular, uh, th these outlandish quotes that they'd say on the journey. And, and so they get they've got great enjoyment out of that and i'd have to say that was an immense value for me because in a way you know taj was three and uh whether he remembers what he's watched on the tv show or remembers it uh for real i'm not totally sure but he we do talk a lot about our time there we we have uh these tonkas, the, these um, paintings that are, are are kind of on a fabric background that the buddhists typically roll up that lama one gal bought for each of us based on our time of birth and, and, and all his position of the moon when we were born. Uh, 
and and we have them sitting over our dining room table and, and uh, we have little incense burners around and, and uh, little buddha statues and whatnot but to me the real um thing i suppose that endured as a family unit is this sense of when all that other stuff was stripped away how strong the bonds grew between us and i can only um kind of try to capture that by by saying it felt like when i looked into my son's eyes i was gazing into a deeper pool of water the connection just felt um and, and i had experienced this on other journeys and, and i think this comes and goes those waters get roughened and so we've made a real effort uh, ever since to continue going on big trips where we were away from everything and just with each other. Uh, and, and, and it feels like it rejuvenates those bonds. I never see a single trip as changing us forever. You know, there, there's kind of that romantic version. I went on a trip and came back a new person. Well, we're the accumulation of all the minutes and hours and weeks we've been alive really and how we integrate that. But that was a big chunk of time. And it, and it's, uh, the way it affected our family was, it taught us the comfort in being together. And it's interesting now with COVID um, during the early part of the lockdown, uh, I, I know a lot of my friends really struggled with that. And I, I tried to, it sounds like patronizing almost, but I tried to reassure them that it gets easier, that I had a speed bump to go over there, that, that, that it was important to learn how to be close to the people we love with, without undistracted time, without the ability to just flip on Facebook or Twitter, uh, because extraordinary rewards would roll out of that that are hard to quantify. But I think inevitably there is a difficulty to that at first because we're so comfortable with the distraction. And so I feel like I learned some of those skills before I had to deal with them in the last nine months. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. A reminder, if you enjoy my podcast from week to week to share your favorite episodes with friends who might be interested and to spread the word by leaving a friendly rating or review at whichever podcasting service you use to listen to Deviate. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Bruce Kirkby's book, Blue Sky Kingdom, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. <laughs>